My name is Robin Williamson, genius of this parish. How do you do? My name is Mike Caron. I come from Edinburgh. I'm very pleased to meet you all. The road goes ever on, and be glad for the song has no ending. Hello, I'm Stephen Coates. As I record this, it's the winter solstice. The wind is blowing, the ice is coming, and winter has arrived in Scotland. And so what better to talk about for this occasion than the subject of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. A huge early Christmas present from our friends at Strange Attractor Publishers has arrived. It's a real doorstopper of a book called Be Glad for the Song Has No Ending. It's a wonderful treasure trove, a compendium of writings, art, geeky facts and figures, crazy illustrations, arcane trivia, interviews, clippings and photographs. All about one subject, the incredible string band. Artists, collective, myth-makers, storytellers, tribe leaders, psychedelic phenomena, hippie cult even. They pioneered world music with albums like The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, Paul McCartney's favourite album of 1967. They experimented with theatre, film and lifestyle, inspired Led Zeppelin and many other artists. They lived the hippie dream in communes with free love, dressed like medieval prince and princesses, the very essence of the Scottish counterculture. They became international stars for a while, played Woodstock, were acid evangelists and gathered a following, a tribe really, that stayed loyal to them long after they'd gone. Uh, I was introduced to them really by Stephen Duffy of the Lilac Time when he told me how inspired he'd been when he first saw them in Birmingham when he was just 14. But now I realise that their story is incredible. Originally a folky three-piece of Clive Palmer, Mike Heron and Robin Williamson in Scotland, they evolved into a psychedelic hippie four-piece after Clive left and Licorice McKechnie and Rose Simpson joined. They had all sorts of adventures and got involved with Scientology and went through various other incarnations before the song did have a sort of ending in 1974. Well, we're going to hear all about that in this, the first of a two-parter. This is the incredible string band from the outside with Adrian Whitaker, who compiled that book I mentioned earlier. Uh, and with an appearance from Peter Neal, who made the film Be Glad for the Song Has No Ending back in 1970. And thanks to Peter, we're going to hear various clips from that as we go. In the next episode, we're going to meet Rose Simpson. So we're going to hear about the incredible string band from the inside. Because Rose, for four incredible string years, lived a full-on countercultural life in the last years of the 60s and early years of the 70s as a muse and a member of the band. But, for now, let's dive in. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Adrian Whitaker. Hello, hi Stephen. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about, of course, the incredible string band. And you sent me something the other day and it struck a chord with me saying that fan, and this is a book which is written by a fan, includes testimonies of fans and the band and commentators and all sorts of other people. But fan is short for fanatic. Yeah. And, and actually, this is a work of fanaticism. And the Incredible String Band, they're one of those bands, one of those artistic endeavours that collected around them, uh, fanatics, even when they were gone. So tell us, why are you an Incredible String Band fanatic? For me, it started in 1968. I, I went to the record library. I found Hangman's Beautiful Daughter there. And then it was kind of out on permanent loan, really, for the the next few months. And that, I, you know, I just loved it. It spoke to something. It spoke to me. It was kind of otherworldly. It led me into all kinds of other stuff as well, like um, 
Robert Graves is the white goddess and world religions and stuff. Um, but it was a kind of pretty much a kind of solo, solitary pursuit. Well, me and my friend Keith from school, and we do things like go to listing booths in the in the lunch hour and listen to the new album because we couldn't actually afford to buy it. <laughs> um, but so the kind of tribe thing, the slightly fanatic, fanatical um, string band fans, I didn't really um, meet up with those until the late 80s, mm. which is the era of fanzines. And I put on two films at the Rio Cinema in Dawson. That was like a gathering of the tribes. And then I started writing for fancy. So then, then there was a sort of this group of uh, group of people who were pretty seriously into uh, the stream, but also into finding out stuff because so little was really known about them back then. So out of that grew the book. They're one of those bands. I mean, I can think of others. The Grateful Dead's an obvious example, isn't it? Yep. I mean, D- Dylan too, you know, um, who have generated this kind of fascination. And the tribal's a great word, actually, isn't it, for people who... Somehow they've elevated themselves or they've been elevated above the kind of common or garden run-of-the-mill band. I'm with you on Dylan and the Grateful Dead and also Sid Barrett. I mean, it was a, a very, very huge Sid Barrett fan. Well, Sid Barrett's appeared in ghostly form on this show a number of times. Including, yes, I know, yeah. I guess that we could also include possibly Nick Drake. Whatever it is that generates that, you mentioned The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, which I think many people regard as the peak of incredible string bands work and you mentioned then it opened the doors for you to Robert Graves mythology and maybe this is the answer to the earlier question about you know why a band would inspire that kind of tribal loyalty is that there's something particular in that album isn't there that that's mixing all sorts of things mythology folklore psychedelic thinking as well as this layered world music Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it's it's a winter album. I mean, unlike We Tam the Big Huge, which is really a summer album, and it's dark, it's dark, mm. and there's um, I mean, there's a sort of bit of a pagan vibe to them. Not very much, not as much as some people think, really. But on that album, it's really where you get that kind of pagan thing from songs like Three Is a Green Crown, which is kind of quite frightening, really, and Swift as the Wind, which is Mike Herron's uh, uh, right. take on that kind of stuff. Um, it's dark uh, and it is layered and it brings in all these different musical elements. And it also feels like it sort of taps deep into the British psyche in some way, right? You know, some folk tradition. And I think one of the things which is interesting is that they're from Edinburgh, right? They're from the Scottish. They're Scottish. And so there was this vibrant Scottish counterculture, which they emerged from, right? Yeah. I mean, there were were surprisingly small scenes. (laughs) Biggest scene... Uh, around the string band in the early days was actually one um, folk club, so-called Clive's Incredible Folk Club, uh, which about there's a, a lot of mythology and some of it's true and some of it isn't. But that was a real meeting point for people. And then out of it, you know, there were kind of things that were linked um, into uh, other other disciplines, drama and art and so on. There was a sort of layers of, of people who were sort of just often just out in the countryside doing something Mm. And not necessarily all that gathering together. I think that gathering together might have happened at the string band concerts in 68 onwards, even in Scotland, you know. So they came out of that folk scene. Where did you link in these other themes which came in, this kind of deep folklore, the theatrical aspect to them, which, you know, came to the fore a bit later on, as you mentioned then. The other kind of psychedelic, let's call it that, influences this kind of potpourri of countercultural life and music robin particularly was 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 steeped in kind of folk stuff in the early days but also had this hankering to travel and as soon as they got the advance for the first album uh he set off for morocco intending to stay there forever he steeped himself in north african music and you know modal tunings and learned the kind of arabic flute and all that kind of stuff so when he came back from there he met up with mike and mike had been doing what he calls a kind of little wire rack harmonica tour with Clive Palmer of the folk clubs. And that launched them into something which was more kind of steeped in world music and also steeped in acid, which had taken off uh, by then. In fact, Clive Palmer was, I think, the first person in Scotland to be arrested for position, possession of LSD when it was became illegal, I think, at the end of 1966. The performing, it's kind of interesting because, again, it's more... 
the visual aspects I'm, I'm more robin than mike i mean mike was much more into a straight performances robin i think was always casting around some way to amplify so their first big thing was the having the two dancers uh, mimi and mouse um, who were an important part of it in the uh, late 60s a bit written out of history but they were real professionals they'd studied indian dance they'd studied at the royal college of ballet they were there to enhance the songs really that's how robin saw it mm. mike have to say was much more dubious about them um but then that, that went on then with bringing rose and licorice and um you know then later on the whole exploding galaxy lot you know the kind of malcolm and yeah. rackis and um stone monkey and so on so it all developed it went through kind of phases but that intention was always there and you can see it as well in, yeah. in peter neal's film with them and about them uh, be glad for the song there's no ending where there's a whole kind of fantasy sequence isn't there of uh, uh, for the hangout round pentra ifan cromlech in the fish garden only a palace with interior doors well painted well gargoyled with multiple floors Two windows let free this projector machine, and the magical world here appears on the screen. My servants attend me with tricks of the senses, the past and the future, and similar tenses. On platters of air they convey me my measure, both gladness and sorrow I lack not for treasure. The Lord and his lady are seated within, in the court of the mind where the song does begin. The song is as fine, is as fine as as follows, the song does continue through measureless hollows that sink from the levels of personal being, through caverns of darkness where dragons are dwelling. The mountains above them are raised at my calling, where the apples are ripe, or the rain is falling. And in ships of white vision I sail the horizon, where three spinners stand beyond the horizon, under the tree with the apples of beauty. I watch them arranging my days and tomorrows, the song is as fine, is as fine as as follows. I stood on the beach where the moon was a-curling. I laughed on the wings of the seabirds calling. I laughed when sweet Venus, a lover, did bring me. I cried when sweet Saturn and Jupiter moved us. And all of my servants were fighting their brothers. And the Lord and his lady, they hated each other. Till the spinners arose with their work on their fingers. Commanding the presence of heavenly singers that spoke of the silence so soon to be coming, when all would be still in the wonderful palace. Then all of these warriors left off their struggles, threw swords to the earth and embraced each other. This peace is not stillness, but peacefully changing. This hope is the hope of the man on the gallows. The song is as fine, is as fine as as follows. The infant I was in the womb of my mother, the white sperm I was in the loins of my father, and before that I swam in the oceans of nowhere, where the fish are as fine as the color of colors, where the wind is the message of centuries rolling, where the waves are the breath of the Holy Creator, where all of the rivers, grown mighty with flowing, and crowned with the gifts of the myriad valleys, return with a sigh to the sea of their coming, forever and ever and ever and ever. Be glad, oh be glad, for the song has no ending. Did acid play a big part in it for them? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, obviously, acid itself was a huge part of countercultural developments in the sixties all around the West. For them, well, I think quite a lot, and up to probably the end of sixty-eight. I mean, Shirley Collins actually have said um, Robin was an acid evangelist, you know, and you know, you've not seen a tree properly until you've seen it on acid, that kind of thing. It was a big part, I think. Rose Simpson, who you're going to be talking to, would probably say the same. That phased out. I think 29, they were moving away from that kind of thing. And also the first intimations of, of Scientology, which also kind of had a downer on the psychedelic experience. Yeah, we should come back to that, definitely. But they record the first album, The Incredible String Band, in, in, in 66. Joe Boyd, a friend of the show, incredible sort of mover and shaker in all these yeah. times. You know, UFO Club, Nick Drake, John Martin, lots of other people he's produced. Uh, Pink Floyd, in fact, as well. Uh, they record this album, and it's actually reasonably successful. It's folk album with the eerie melody maker. D Bob Dylan praises it. I mean, with a quite downbeat uh, yeah. statement saying it, it was quite good. But from Dylan, that's obviously high. That was an October song, yeah. yeah. But 
they do this extraordinary thing. I mean, most bands, uh, certainly these days anyway, they're getting a record label, getting a producer like Joe Boyd, and, you know, the record doing quite well. They'd be thinking like, oh, crikey, you know, we're, we're off. We're, you know, this is it. They wrote to stardom. What do these guys do? They all split up. Yeah. You know, Clive Palmer goes on the hippie trail <laughs> to Afghanistan. Uh, Robin Williamson uh, and Licorice head off to Morocco. Uh, uh, and that's right. Yeah. Mike Heron stays in Edinburgh. I mean, it's 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 quite that's quite an in, that's quite a countercultural thing, isn't it? Stardom obviously was not a big yeah, part of their yeah, constellation. It, yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course, what happened when they were away, or two of them were away, was the whole thing took off, and uh, Joe Boyd got Judy Collins interested in covering songs and. Uh, then they won that big Albert Hall um, concert with Tom Paxton, kind of reinvigorated them. And also Mike was indentured, which is a quaint Scottish custom where you pay a load of money and to train in, as an accountant in his case, and you're indentured. And there's major penalties if you leave before the end of your adventure. So it, indenture. <laughs> so that would have kept him there right. really until... Uh, 67 sometime he, he couldn't really go very far he could play maybe a weekend gig somewhere can't get less counterculture than that studying for your accountancy exams yes <laughs> while, the right. other, while the other two were off on the hippie trail absolutely but when they come back in their absence things have actually started to take off so they get together again of course also robin has come back from morocco with a whole bunch of strange instruments right that kind of injects the travels maybe in the opening of consciousness by you know these voyages to dim uh, and distant exotic lands that kind of inspired them in a different way and it because the next thing they do is is a major psychedelic step up yeah absolutely i mean psychedelic but still a bit poppy still a bit accessible um five thousand spirits and Mike, of course, had been listening to a lot of world music, again, on the kind of non-such record label, Electra's label for that. So he was kind of steeped in things like music of the Bahamas and uh, Hawaiian stuff and so on. People kind of say the opening notes of Chinese White, first track on the first side, with the gimbri screeching away, is like a real signal that the music is moving far away from that folk club sort of trad thing. I guess there's a link with somebody like Brian Jones who, you know, was bringing those kind of world music kind of influences even into the Stones. Yes. But the incredible string one, I mean, you can't really underestimate how rad that was at the time, really. Even though it was a psychedelic era, they were channeling stuff from a, a lot further afield. They were, and perhaps a bit more intensely than, than some of the people that, that played around with that idea, like I mean, Donovan, for example. Right. They took it quite seriously. And, you know, Mike had um, sitar lessons in London. Yeah, they, they kind of studied it quite a bit. Not that they were kind of maestros, but it wasn't just a little bit of kind of dusting on the cake, you know. Well, 5,000 yeah. Spirits, that elevates their public profile quite a lot, doesn't it? It's sort of, sort of rave reviews totally, yeah. in the press. And then they start to play at UFO Club which is Joe Boyd and Hobby Hopkins yes. place and other places in London, of course. And that introduces them really to, or introduces the London underground in a sense to yeah. them. And John Peel's, John Peel's playing them on his Perfume Garden radio show on the pirate stations. Suddenly they're like embedded in this wider kind of British counterculture, not just the folk scene or the Scottish counterculture, right? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting place um, which I'd never really come across before in the whole kind of London sort of little centres and scenes, which is called Baghdad House. Baghdad House was a kind of an Iraqi huh. uh, restaurant and club where there was live Iraqi music in Drayton Gardens. And Brian Jones would hang out there, and so did the string band, and so did Mark Bolin, I think, and right. uh, so did Mimi and Mouse, the two dancers. So that was another little scene around there with a definite North African but, you know, Eastern, Middle Eastern vibe. And they also start to get, like, plaudits. Paul McCartney yep. says it's his favourite record. Suddenly, they're off, aren't they? And then 68, The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. Maybe you could say a bit more about that album and why it matters so much. But Hangman gets into top five in the UK album, album charts, yeah. It was, as I said, really such a an intense distillation of all that kind of stuff with all these, with all these elements sitar playing Gimri, all the, the musical stuff, Bahamas uh, is in there as well, the song, cellular song, bits of trippy stuff, bits of slightly odd folk, folk tunes are in there. 
dark pagan stuff. Mm. So it was there in a very condensed format which was just so different from anything else and also a very appealing cover which was the cover originally was just mike and robin sitting on a wall in the snow and nothing on the back all this all the sort of stuff about who played what and lyrics were on a kind of fold-out sheet inside on the back you just had this weird looking another sort of tribe really but of course rose is there she wasn't even in the band at the time she was visiting so that got turned around later years and that became the front is to reflect the, yeah. the role of the women in the band. So Licorice McKechnie and uh, and Rose Simpson, who obviously we're hearing from, not only kind of partners of the two of them, but they're in, becoming joined the band and adding lots of kind of dimensions to it, vocals and, and, and all sorts of other instruments, right? I mean, Rose becomes very good bass player. Yeah. But let's just talk a little bit, Adrian, Adrian about the relationship between... Uh, Robin and Mike, because I think what's quite apparent in the book, they'd had Clive Palmer, the, the original cornerstone of the trio, in common. They were both friends of him, but they weren't really friends of each other, right? And there was this kind of tension which was creative and difficult at times between them. There was, yeah. I mean, Clive was a bridge because he was fairly easygoing, really. And um, mm. I mean, in a way, it was often a good one. In, uh, they'd seek to outdo each other on how they embellished the other songs, because mm. that was always the deal, really. If you write a song, I get to play some, mm. some sort of lead instrument. Right? Sometimes songs are, are about things that have happened to you. And sometimes uh, songs are about things that you would like to make happen or like to see happen, or they're, they're fantasy songs that you make up. Or else they're songs that just kind of visit themselves upon you like dreams. Or else there's um, songs which are about things you've suddenly understood and which just open up a whole new channel. So you write that down. I'm bringing the so-called girls, the two women in, um, as Rose will tell you, sort of broaden things out again, uh, probably diffuse some of the tension. But also they actually had quite formalised roles in the band by 1969. Um, Rose was the bass player and Licky was the keyboard player and that probably made the, just made the whole working relationships easier really. There were two other people there to kind of diffuse that. Creative tensions in bands, Lennon and McCartney, obviously, you know, it's not a bad thing, is it? Sometimes it's producing some of the best work. So they had this deal, didn't they? Whereas they keep the songs separate, unlike Lennon and McCartney, they were always attributed to one or the other of them. But the one who hadn't written the song was allowed to kind of put their fingerprints all over it by kind of arranging yeah, that, it. That, that worked very well. I mean, it only really fell apart in the, in the last year of the band yeah. when they really started pulling in different directions and also record mm. company pressure to be commercial, to be successful, which was anathema really to, to Robin, perhaps. To go back to 68, so by this time, you know, Rose and Licky are in the band. They're off. They're filling, filling major venues Festival Hall. Um, they play at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Albert. Albert Hall. Now, when they're in America, something happens, which is probably possibly doomed them, certainly changed their direction, isn't it? Which is that they get involved in Scientology. Tell us a little bit about that, Adrian. It's kind of weird, really. Because, I mean, they'd clearly been searching for stuff and they grew up in quite traditional middle-class families, perhaps a bit restrictive. And so they were always kind of looking for something that was going to provide some new references. And strangely, Licorice, who was probably the, the one that was most needed some sort of secure thing to hang on to as a, as a person, was her who got buttonholed by uh, somebody at the very end of 68 and very quickly convinced Robin. And followed later on by Mike Heron and, and most unwillingly, I'd say, Rose. Imperceptible at first, but by the um, end of 1970, which is when Rose left, really, early 71, it was beginning to have a real hold on, on how they were. Not necessarily badly. Some of it was about effective communication. So some of that conflict stuff between Mike and Robin was dealt with in perhaps a, a better way than it had been in the past. But it also meant that it, it became gradually more straight ahead 
really, um, the music and, and the way it lost some of its charm and mystery. Although it was, until the end, there was always something showed they were still capable of redemption, even right down to the very last album. There were a couple of tracks that were really great. Scientology was, I suppose, in a sense, was part of what you might call the kind of the decline. But in 69, there's this kind of diversion, and it's something that I wasn't aware of, is they do actually play at Woodstock. Yeah. Um, but of course, they're kind of omitted from the film because they kind of refused to play in yep. the rain. So they got some of their slot was moved, wasn't it, into amongst the hard rockers. So they were always uncompromising. So you'd go and see them. And right. Think, oh, I'd really like to hear right. some of those songs off Changing Horses, which had just come out like a month ago. And they were playing songs that I haven't even recorded that were going to be on the next album. Even with festivals where logic usually dictates you do a bit of a greatest hit set, they didn't. <laughs> it was all songs yeah. nobody had ever heard before. And, you know, that was not yeah. guaranteed to work so well. So that's part of it, too. There's no get more guaranteed way to chill an audience by introducing a song and saying, this is off our next yeah. album. <laughs> well, they didn't even say that. Was... But, I mean, the performances, <laughs> actually, having heard the whole Woodstock box set, they're quite good, actually. Well, let's come back to these shores anyway, because in 69, um, they get involved with the Exploding Galaxy. Jill Drower been on this show talking about the Exploding Galaxy, this kind of avant-garde, experimental, theatrical dance troupe based in... London and inspired by David Medalla, this exotic creature. Um, so tell us about a little bit about their involvement with them, because there'd always been this theatrical side. And that turned into a proper psychedelic conjunction, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, they'd met Malcolm and his friend Rackis in at the Chelsea Hotel, actually, in New York in 68. And eventually Robin and co got um, a farmhouse in Wales, a very kind of damp, inhospitable place near Fishguard, round the corner from uh, Cromlech, country Ethan. Here is a sidebar about the film Be Glad the Song Has Now Ended with director Peter Neal. The film was released in July 1970 and it's in two parts. The first part is stage performance from the night March 1968 World Festival Hall concert with interviews of the band about their thought processes and ways of living by journalists and then later at the group's communal home in Glasgow along with clips of their crazy countercultural daily lives. But part two is where it really gets trippy. It involves the group with friends out in West Wales, dressing up to create a 20-minute drama play called The Pirate and the Crystal Ball. And the filming of that was completed in one insane weekend. The basic storyline includes a pirate attempting to steal a crystal ball from three fates, played by Rose Simpson, Chris McKechnie, and their friend Helena Schofield. These fates enlist a hunter, the dancer Malcolm Maestro, who was later a member of the band, to set matters right, and the hunter captures the pirate, another dancer, to be judged by two gods, Robin and Mike, uh, and in the end the pirate is forced into an endless reincarnation cycle, a collage of psychedelic images relating to the pirate's past begins and ends with the sound of a baby's cry. I'd been doing some pop promos and things back in the in the sixties, and uh, I'd met this guy called John Marshall, and who came and told me about Jimi Hendrix. Having made a film with Jimi Hendrix, who can you? How can you follow up on that? <laughs> we both agreed the only other people we'd be interested in is going to be a string band because they're unique. So we got in touch with um, Joe Boyd. And, uh, and then Mike and Robin. And uh, the film kind of built up from there, really. It was like the Hendrix film. It was, it was done in bits and pieces. We'd always start off these things by doing a concert because that gives you a, a grounding. I wanted to know what made them tick uh, as human beings and uh, why they were doing what they were doing. So I think we filmed their Royal Festival Hall concert uh, where they did... Noah's Ark thing at the beginning and then sort of ideas spread because you get the idea of the Noah's Ark of animals the Noah's Ark of their instruments 110 instruments on the stage which they tiptoe around and pick up and play then obviously you move on to things like talking to them about themselves and their, their motivation and why, what they're trying to do and that coincided with an with a American porter doing an interview with actually Interesting to see what this American guy made of Mike. I mean, it's almost like they had they were living in different planets. A guy who asked him, where do your songs come from? You know, Mike, 
who, to be honest, was very stoned. Back before he started the interview, he just said, I'm just going out for a minute. <laughs> About five minutes later. I thought it'd be nice to have them both standing on this bleak Scottish hillside, sort of showing the space between them. <laughs> Brian particular was deeply into myth and stories, which I was too. There was that connection and I sensed that in them, which was very deep rooted. Not even folk music, it was, it was grown out of that. There was no other music like it, quite honestly. They embodied it embody it and they would take it to heart by the council culture for that reason. I mean, they, they had nothing to do with the commercialization of music, even though I believe they were the fourth biggest album selling band in the country at the time. You know, after the Beatles and the Stones and the Who or whatever it was. It was also the kind of time when people were really getting interested in world music and they combined sounds from all over the place and all their instruments were from all over the Robin's singing was more in the vein of an Indian singer or rather than a Scottish folk singer. And I, I think all those combined to give them this magical edge. There was no other concert like a string band concert. This was a big party, you know. We're having fun. Enjoy this with us. And I mean, he was a great raconteur, Robin. Still is. Well, some people think they're bodies. Some people think they're animals. Some people think, some people know that they're spirits, and some people think that they're uh, inferior to a great God who created everything. Some people think that they're part of that of that God that created everything, and some people realise that every moment they're creating the future. Verily, verily, I am the pebble in your very own eye. I am the sword, and your enemy dies. I am the storm and the hurricane winds. I am the thorn of an unkind friend. My name is Robin Williamson, genius of this parish. How do you do? Oh, gate of the soft mystery. I love you if you love me. Guide me with the gold of Gabriel's wings. Grant me the tongue that all the earth does sing Vibrating light Forever one the sun The book of life is open to us There'll be no secrets left We just felt, um, in a way, this was a collaborative film. But the idea was to do some kind of folk tale, some kind of fables, which they would conceive of and I would film. They were living down in farm in Wales, and uh, I found my way there with great difficulty. And I had no idea at this point what they were going to do. And when I arrived, they said, well, we'll go out in the field there. And, and we got, we got these, um, this idea about the three muses. We filmed that with the crystal ball. They kept laying things on me. So really what I was doing was kind of helping them realise their ideas on film, advising everything on the spot. There was never any idea, this is the story, what do you think? <laughs> it was done like a happening, <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> Summer Stone Monkey came, um, Malcolm the Maester, obviously, and Rackus playing characters. And it just grew like Topsy. So in my head, I, I, was, I knew where all these bits were going to go. And, and what I didn't know is how we were going to do the soundtrack. I went to visit them in a hotel in London where they'd stripped all the beds out and were sleeping on the floor. And they said, well, we, we, we're playing around with some music. I said, well, you just do some music. You know, you know the story. 
So they brought up all these bits and pieces of music. And that's how the soundtrack came in the end, which, um, I mean, I loved the music for it. I thought it was great. I spoke with Robin, who was the most, who was the most critical, many years later. He said, yeah I, yeah, I think you really caught us. In a way, it has a sweet amateurishness about it, like they do. It caught them and their mood and what was going on at the time. So, so I think, in a way, it's unique amongst music films. I mean, a lot of people loved it. Uh, probably a lot of people didn't love it at all. Uh, but it, it survived. You know, the fact, the fact is, I think, testament to it is that it's, it's people are still watching it. I think it was made in a weekend, and that included travelling from London to Wales and back again, and not sleeping at all, because, you know, we worked all through the night. Not eating, really, because there wasn't time and nobody was looking after food. There were some sacks of brown rice in the kitchen, but nobody was interested in cooking. We did go into the local town half an hour to get fish and chips. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, nobody ate, uh, nobody seemed to sleep. Uh, oh, Joe Boyd had driven me down, that's right, he was there. And we were going to come back and the, and the back axle broke on the car. There was myself, um, and my friend Joe Boyd and Mike and the car broke down. It was the middle of the night and I had to be in London at nine o'clock for a filming session. I mean, with Gregory Peck and people like that. We, we traded across this field and knocked on this farmer's door and asked, can you take us to London, please? Oh, bless him. You know, he said, sit down, have a cup of tea, you look tired. Uh, what do you do? And Mike said, well, I'm, I'm a musician. Oh, yeah, I love music. So, and then he got his car out and drove us all the way to London. <laughs> Nobody really had worries at the time, other than about the state of the world. You didn't have worries about yourself. Total confidence that everything would turn out all right if you just smiled and loved everyone. <laughs> True, there was a great kind of um, optimism at the time. That was a key element to community. You had to build community. Uh, and that was what, to me, the counterculture was kind of about, was building community. I had to care about each other. So Malcolm and Rackis would do kind of mimes and dances here and there with them. But then it built up when they moved into a row of houses, Glen in Leitham, Scotland. It wasn't coming to living, which um, a lot of them didn't really want, but they had they lived together, but they had separate space. And in that was born um, the preparations for the, the U show that was on at the Roundhouse, that was, I think, 1970. There were two stages, String Band on the left, Stone Monkey, as it was then, which was a lot of people from, from Exploding Galaxy. On the right, some of it was really good. I mean, there's a, I went twice. I was, like, 17, I think. But some of it was, oh, no, <laughs> this is dreadful hand-waving stuff. <laughs> the thing was, Malcolm was a very good dancer, and Rackis was a good character dancer. He played, like, pirates and stuff. And everyone else was just flopping their arms around a bit. So nobody really knew how to read it. I mean, later on, Rose said, I think what people didn't really get, that really it was like our end-of-term party show. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> that's true, you know. It's like, you do that bit and I'll do that well, bit. Oh, you do that bit where you do so-and-so. That's the thing with expressive dance, isn't it? It can be very moving or it can be absolutely teeth-grindingly awful and embarrassing, depending on who's doing it.
But, but they were bold, weren't they? They were bold, yeah. I mean, I know that was a lot of that was Robin's uh, vision, you know, these these theatrical fancies, and I think he described it as a surreal parable in dance yeah. and song, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> these levels of spiritual awareness communicate something a bit mythic. As you move into the 70s with the counterculture generally, there is this move out into the country and to communes and stuff, and so so they were part of that too, you know, with, with their way of li- living together. But yeah. also it's about to crash into the dark, more socially grounded counterculture of Britain in the 70s, which was this more bleaker place than the 60s, wasn't it? With a bit less hope and a bit more political, yeah. a bit more a bit more hard-edged. And so I'm guessing that a lot of this stuff might have started to appear to be rather overly fanciful and disconnected with the sort of realities of life, possibly. Sure. Uh, Joe Boyd enabled them and he also protected them um, from a lot of stuff. Right. Um, <clears throat> and he was also the intermediary between them and the record company which was Electra although he didn't like you but he kind of dealt with it <laughs> and when he left they felt abandoned really nobody was there to give a very clear direction when Joe went back to America um, they got transferred to Island Records Island Records saw them much more as one of many bands we've got and okay what's commercial and is there a single on this and so on and there was a slow mm. pressure to kind of streamline it all and get rid of quite a lot of the visual aspects but there was there's often a little bit um, here and there, there'll be a little skit. Robin would do a funny song and Malcolm would do a kind of dance mime to it. And they were actually really good because he, he was real professional, mm. Malcolm. I mean, that was that was good, actually. But it would it didn't go on too long. You know, it's like three or four minutes and that was it. And they went on, they recorded another five albums with Ireland, didn't they? But, but it was kind of, it was sort of a bit like diminishing returns in a sense. And, you know, the, the, the show which had, Joe had piloted, though not liking it, this U show had gone to California film or Eastern been a bit of a flop and it? it's quite interesting with Joe because he when you've got a very experimental slightly crazy artists like these guys if you've got somebody like that who as you say can sort of protect them but also kind of shepherd them somewhat yes it kind of it kind of works doesn't it but in the yeah. absence of that it gets really quite difficult I, I also wanted to just drop in the fact which I didn't realize but I mean a sense how many people were influenced particularly by the earlier albums. I mean, Robert Plant, you know, talks oh, yeah. in that yeah. early, those earlier Led Zeppelin albums, the folky ones, were kind of built on an incredible string band template. Yeah, or some of the songs. Yes, they're mm. still friends with Rose, actually. No, but also, rather unlikely as well, was Neil Tennant, Pet Shop Boys, who in his kind of teens was absolutely blown away by them. So he was like a bit of a fanatic. He'd go to all the gigs up in Newcastle around that area, hang out backstage, and his first group was a folk group, sort of psychedelic folkish, I think. Two boys, two girls, called Dust. <laughs> Pet Shop Boys Neil Tennant was a huge, incredible string band fan. It's it's quite astounding, isn't it? You know, given the arc of his own amazing career afterwards. Stephen Stephen Duffy, Lilac Time, told me that incredible string band were a you know major taking off point for him like you he i think he saw them in birmingham in the 70s when he was i think 14 or something you know and um and his own career which you know has involved pop stardom at least twice um and early on you know with a kind of electronic 80s pop but he kept returning to the lilac time you know is which is obviously his main love and i think you know for the lilac time incredible string band were kind of a major sort of mythic mentor split in 74 and I suppose in some ways it was a good job really wasn't it because it's really difficult given the fact that punk was about to happen yeah in 75 and 76 yeah, yeah, yeah. 
The incredible string bands coexisting alongside Sex Pistols seems sort of preposterous somehow. That's not a critique of the incredible string band, but it's just that the times had changed so radically. The times had changed. I mean, even in 74, they were touring in America quite often to support to big sort of classic rock act. Bruce Springsteen, mm. they supported twice. <laughs> yes, I mean, Robin said publicly that they should have split up two years before they did because they were already pulling in different directions, really, noticeably. Probably it was Scientology that kept them together when really they could have <laughs> moved on happily, I think. They inspired you as a youngster and there is this tribe of people who love them who the book came out of that. And if you look back at that kind of first gig that where you, where you were sort of blown away and then sort of look down the years at, at the things that have happened since, how do they feature in your own musical imagination now? There was a time when they were always <clears throat> always there, really. But thinking about all that stuff again when I was finishing the book, editing the book and writing stuff for it, um, and preparing for the launch, which we had at the Marmay Club a couple of weeks ago, where people played string band songs, uh, and Mike turned up, actually, out of the blue. Uh, Mike Aaron came. Um, uh, sent me back to that, and I began to get some of yeah. the... Um, the immediacy and the freshness I got from listening to Hangman again. You've sort of laid it to rest with this book, which is a beautiful production, full of fascinating stuff, including some very early fan fiction. You know, they were yeah. one of the first bands to actually inspire their fans to create sort of fictional works featuring them as characters, yeah, that's, that's, right? That's Andrew Gregg, who's a well-known Scottish novelist and poet who, who actually performed at the launch as well. As we sort of draw to the end, Adrian, I just wanted to you know, ask you to talk a little bit about something which, of course, is rather tragic in their whole story, which is licorice, Christina, Christina McKechnie, you know, who was part of the band along with Rose. The band splits in 74. Uh, She was the one, as you mentioned, who was kind of keenest on Scientology. And the most vulnerable, and she does various things. She goes to California, she's still involved with music. Reunited with Robin later in the 70s, where she becomes... But... Goes to Edinburgh in 1986 to see her family, but her whereabouts have been unknown since 1990. She fell out with Scientology quite badly. And anyone who leaves Scientology, if they've got a name already, famous musician, get pursued and harassed, you know. So I think that's why she disappeared, really. And there's a lot of mythology about it. What her family think, that's her sister and her nephews, is that she's living... Uh, as Robin once said, actually hiding in plain sight somewhere in California. So she's just keeping a very low profile. I think we all we all love myths. Don't, of course, Incredible String Band and Sid Barrett have gathered a lot of myths about them, but that's quite appealing, isn't it? As long as it isn't you or your family, of, of somebody kind of walking off into the desert, like a in in the Vin Vendors film Parish Texas, or yeah, you know, or, or um, Sid walking off into the English woodlands, gaining enlightenment in some way. But in fact, it's probably a little bit more pedestrian than that, right? So um, we've come to the end, Adrian, and thank you for this kind of rapid, very rapid walk through the life and times of the incredible string man there's so much more to it as is revealed in your doorstopper of a book it is a big book in all sorts of ways and an extraordinary peek not only into their peculiar countercultural life and times but into the life and times of of the counterculture era in some ways it felt to me like their trajectory was a bit parallel to the classic countercultural trajectory from sort of folk roots through psychedelia into the kind of communal living of the 70s. Well, one thing I I didn't really underline enough, I think, was that the book is really multiple voices, but other people as well, both band members, band kind of acolytes, and uh, just fans. And that, I think, makes it quite an interesting thing, because it's it's not overly fawning. There's some sort of distance (laughs) in most people's writings when they write about them pay tribute to really to all the other people who wrote stuff that is in the book that i collected together its title be glad for the song has no ending is rather lovely isn't it because you feel i suspect that incredible string man's songs will live on yeah the songs live on i mean particularly that that classic trio of albums five thousand spirits hangman and we turn the big huge they live on i mean i could you know sing them from front to back still now Adrian Whitaker, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you for having me, Stephen. So, thanks to Adrian, thanks to Peter. 
Next time, as I mentioned, we'll be back with an interview with Rose, Rose Simpson, about her life and times with, within the incredible string bubble, as we decided to call it. It's a truly amazing and crazy story. If you want more, check out the Incredible String Band book, Be Glad for the Song There's No Ending, written or compiled by Adrian and published by Strange Attractor, and Peter's film, Be Glad for the Song There's No Ending. I'll put a link to both in the show notes. I'm going to be back with Peter too to talk about some more of his adventures filming the counterculture next year. But for now, I'd like to wish you happy solstice, a countercultural Christmas peace and love for this sad old world in 2024. Thanks for being with me and with our guests this year. We really appreciate you. See you next time down the road, round the bend, for more tales from the other side, from the underground. Let's finish with a song. no ending.